Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Gregory Downs studies the political and cultural history of the United States in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Today we will be discussing his book, The Second American Revolution, The Civil War Era Struggle Over Cuba, and The Rebirth of the American Republic. Dr. Downs, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. To start, could you tell us why the name Civil War doesn't effectively capture the conflict? It's a really important question, and before I answer it, I think it's also important to help people understand that the name Civil War didn't float down from the sky on tablets. For many Americans, it is unimaginable that the war would be called anything other than the Civil War. And you'll hear people say, well, it's just common sense, that's what it was. But in fact, as scholars have carefully shown, the Civil War itself was not the most common name for the conflict during the conflict or in the decades after. And a series of different ways of describing the conflict circulated across the country in both North and South from the 1860s into the early 1900s. Many of these are, are ways of speaking that we now see in our documents, the War of the Rebellion, which is something that virtually um, the official records of the War of the Rebellion which is a record set that almost all scholars of the period work with, reflect that the federal government designated it by a term other than the Civil War, the War of the Rebellion. And so many other ways of discussing the conflict circulated. So why did the Civil War, if we understand why the Civil War emerged as a name, we'll have a better sense, I think, of understanding what we do when we contemplate undoing that name. So the Civil War emerged in the early 20th century as part of a series of processes that aimed to turn the conflict from a bitter, ideologically charged, potentially revolutionary conflict between highly differentiated sections upon well-articulated and widely understood and fundamental grounds of conflict over the future of slavery and to turn that conflict into something else, and to turn it into something akin to what would later be called a brother's war, a family feud, a fight within a family, a fight that could be explained, as other family fights are, by human dynamics, by a failure of compromise, by a loss of temper, later by references to cultural differences or honor, by references to anything other than the fact that these two sections had gone to war for a fundamental ideological cause, which was whether the nation and through the nation the world should be defined by wage labor or slavery. And this effort to undo the ideological implications of the Civil War emerged in the 20th century as part of a cultural project that's been well studied by many scholars, a cultural project of reconciliation. And this cultural project of reconciliation performed to some degree at the 50th anniversaries of the Civil War in the 19-teens, and then enormously by between the 19-teens and the 1930s, so that it was evident by the 75th anniversaries. This cultural reconciliation aimed to excise black people from the story of the war and also to excise slavery from the story of the war and to turn it between a battle between the brothers where all the brothers were white, a white family feud. This was seen as a way to help reincorporate a white American nationalism in the 20th century. And it was the product of, or it was caused in part by, the success in the South at systematically disfranchising and destroying the political power and to large, though not complete degree, the legal rights of freed people and their descendants to create a Jim Crow segregation. Having destroyed black political power, they did that not only in order to exert white democratic control over Southern states, but also explicitly to destroy the political motivations for white Republicans to step in to defend African-Americans, to have two parties that would be constructed largely, almost exclusively upon a white basis. And out of that, a new political and cultural notion arrived. And that's where the Civil War emerged, alongside a whole bunch of other things that we understand now to be 
at best, highly limited, at worst, nefarious inventions of that segregated era, all of which sought to tamp down the ideological conflict the United States experienced. And yet because of the success of the Civil War propaganda campaign, we're much less likely to see the problematic nature of the Civil War. And it's both the Civil War and the Brothers' War phenomenon that it refers to are reproduced all the time, including in more contemporary works that seem to, in other ways, incorporate the story of slavery into the American narrative and the narrative of the Civil War. So the first thing I think we need to do is say, what's wrong with the Civil War? And where did it come from? And why should we think skeptically of it? So that's the first step. The second step comes with what are the other effects other than that it is a particular historical construction? Well, calling it the Civil War instead of the term that I use, a revolution, also does other work that it not only keeps us from understanding the Civil War as a highly charged ideological conflict about slavery caused by both the acts of enslaved people and the sharp ideological divergence of the two regions as a whole, but it also does other work about how we think about the American Republic. That the United States devotes an enormous amount of time toward fostering what I think is a problematic and limiting myth. And that myth is that the United States has survived. And in this respect, we look back to what I call the first founders and the first constitution, not as a prelude in the way that France with its many republics or Italy or other nations that have undergone separately numbered republics look back and, and many nations value their founders. But in the United States, we look at those first founders, not as the prelude, but as literally the people who founded the system that we're in. And that I think is just a historical untruth. And it's a historical untruth that emerges from our inability to process how disruptive and how revolutionary the Civil War was. That understood properly, even before we get into the full ramifications of the Civil War, that if we understand the Civil War as a collapse of a first republic, then we can more clearly see that the first founders founded a republic that died. This makes them a great deal like virtually every other national founder out there. But it also raises some questions. We have frequently critiqued the founders for their ideological failures, but we have not yet, even in scholarly critique, adequately addressed the fact that they were practical failures. Not that they didn't succeed on the grounds that we would want to found a republic of the type the 21st century Americans want. They failed on their own terms. The Constitution created a republic that collapsed and a system that died. The idea that they would carry particular wisdom into how to build a permanently enduring republic is logically nonsensical, but central to the forms of American myth-making that persist in both conservative and left liberal variants. When we understand the Civil War then as a fundamental collapse of a first system and an establishment of within some of the frameworks of that system, but an establishment of a new system, one of the first things that we come to grips with is the ways that the Civil War language helps to tell a false fairy tale story of American history. And that is that whether for good or for ill, the American system is defined by stability and continuity. And this stability and continuity gets reinforced, as I say, not only in celebratory narratives, not only in liberal nationalist narratives, but in leftist narratives well as a thing to critique about the United States. And the interesting thing is it does such powerful work for those different narratives that rarely do we stop and say it's fundamentally untrue. Even though we have a whole field of American history and probably the single most popular in terms of the mass market area of American history devoted to the failure of that system. 
on its own terms to build a stable republic. I believe, I'm going to go into some other implications in a second, but I believe that it's crucial for Americans to understand the vulnerability and fragility of the American systems, and that a great deal of our political confusion arises from either a celebration of or an acquiescence to the idea that the American system is stable, will be continuous, and will endure. And that this highly constrains our political imagination, our sense of possibility, and our sense of danger. I think that we can sense, because of popular transformations over the last few years, a grappling with the fact that the tools of the American political system are inadequate to address the crises the country faces, and a grappling with, in the popular imagination, the idea that the American system survival is not guaranteed. But I think that we still, even in these moments of contemporary crisis, lack the historical tools to talk about how that fragility, vulnerability, discontinuity is itself a part of American history. And it's for this reason that the scholarship on the Civil War has been both so productive, but I think so misleading. To build a narrative of American continuity, the single most important thing that you have to do is explain away the Civil War. Many of the other moments of discontinuity, disruption, instability, fragility are much less well known by the public, but we have a dilemma. A country that sees itself as a long-standing, stable, continuous republic is also the site of a dramatically bloody and vicious civil war. So what do you do? You explain how that did not threaten the stability of the republic. As early as the 1870s, you see people wondering at the odd way in which, it, by as early as 1876 centennial, people use the Civil War to prove that the United States will not have more civil wars. And in this sense, we get this sort of sense of friction. When you have some things are covered up by amnesia and some things are obscured by a profusion of creative confusion. And that's what I believe happened with the U.S. Civil War, that it was so inescapable a problem for the narratives of stability and continuity that are so central to the American myth-making, as I say, on a variety of political spectrums, that it was this piece that had to be explained and increasingly explained away. So what does it mean to think of two republics? To me, then, this means to think about some basic questions about how change happens in American life and what the Civil War tells us about them. Because that continuity on a left liberal line can easily feed into a story about the power of reform, and especially over the last 50 years, of stories of the power of a reform driven by animated social movements. This, unfortunately, does not explain, in my view, how fundamental change has come to the United States. I wish it did. I would hope that it will in the future. But I don't think our job as historians is to confirm that hope, especially when we're undermining a people's ability to understand how that change happened as they assess whether or not the costs of that change are worth it to them. And so I've been interested over the last 10 years in methods. And when you look at, revolutionary, at revolutions in other contexts, you see a broad focus on a handful of methods that help to define why revolutions differ from other forms of political regime change. And that a revolution is a forcible, in a great deal of social scientific literature, is a forcible effort through extra-legal or extra-constitutional means to permanently alter the fundamental 
nature of a country's political and economic system. And it's that interest in methods, which I'll get into and follow up in your later questions, that led me to think about why we need to try once again as historians, as other historians have done, and many of the greatest historians have talked about either the Civil War or Reconstruction or both as a revolution or as a second revolution, or as Eric Boner is writing about a second founding. And yet we have not only not been able to convince the public, we have not been able to convince social scientists who study revolutions, and we haven't even really been able to convince the field. And that I thought bringing to bear the understandings of the implications of seeing as a revolution for the broadest sweep of American history and the utility of connecting it to other revolutionary moments might help us to capture a focus upon methods as what we mean when we talk about revolution. And in calling the U.S. Civil War a second American revolution, what I am saying is that the fundamental changes that liberal originalists might want to wish into the national fiber of the end of slavery, of the construction of individual rights that would be protected by the federal government, of national citizenship, equal protection, due process, some element of voting rights protections were created not solely by group pressure, but by use of martial law, occupation, oddly construed Congresses that excluded large numbers of their members, and by a willingness among the people to move beyond normal politics to accomplish what normal politics could not. And in this sense, they present a double lesson in thinking of it as a revolution. One of which is against an acquiescence to the idea that politics can't be changed fundamentally. We're stuck. They were not stuck. But the second of which is that in imagining a world as broad as they could hope for, not that they achieved, but in trying to achieve things that seem beyond the boundaries of the system, they took chances and risks and bore costs that are serious and weighty and that are worth weighing as we think about whether or not what kinds of fundamental change today would be worth violating what kind of norms. So those are the reasons that I think that it's useful both as a public and as a scholarly audiences to emphasize that this is not a brother's war, but that this is a fundamental disruption, that the Constitution fundamentally failed at its most basic task to create a stable, enduring country, that it was remade through a process of methods and procedures that relied upon military force, martial law, occupation, in which the Supreme Court was silenced by congressional edict, and in which in other ways normal political processes were frozen to make fundamental changes that determine how we think of the American system today. And that understanding this gives us both a sense of the danger and vulnerability of being an American of this moment, but of any moment in American history, and also of the possibility. And I want people to see beyond, to see both those dangers and those possibilities. How does your work show that Americans overestimate the nation's constitutional continuity? So we have an interesting set of dilemmas, which is that almost all in the United States. Almost all of the ways that Americans define their constitutional rights are not products of the original Constitution. That in defining a federally protected right that will prevent infringement by state and local governments or by other actors, we're almost always referring to a 20th century development that's a 20th century interpretation of a Civil War era transformation, the 14th Amendment. So we have a double oddity there that in post-New Deal, post-World War II era, that the way Americans talk about their constitutional rights both suggest that they're rooted in the original Constitution, but are actually highly dependent upon a series of 20th century interpretations 
of a 14th Amendment passed after the Civil War. And in this respect, we already start to get a sense of the problematic nature of our understanding of constitutional continuity. That on a popular level, there is a confusion about how and when certain rights came into being. And this creates, I think, a kind of complacency around the protection of those rights. That while people have some engagement with the relatively brief window of federal protection of civil rights for African-Americans, they have much less of an understanding of how brief federal protection of other rights, including for white Americans, has been. And in this sense, a kind of naturalization or an extending backward creates a kind of over-exaggeration of how reliable those rights are or of whether a system is able to enforce it. So to explain this oddity, we've got a puzzle. How is it that in many ways, largely new, though some with some rooting in prior constitutional language, rights are created after the Civil War, and yet we don't say what I think would be natural in many uh, other nations, which is we have a second constitution, first constitution, second constitution. Many countries have many more than that, of course, right? If you go to Mexico, there are a series of constitutions, constitutional moments leading up to the remaking the constitution in the age of the reform. If you go to Spain, there's a series of constitutions. Why is it that Americans don't? And I think that there are a couple of important reasons for that. One of which is that the second founders, the people who ran to some degree tried to manage the Civil War's constitutional process, were highly wary of explicitly saying that they had a new constitution. And so therefore, they're a process of amending rather than of discarding. And I think that it is important, as I talk about this discontinuity, to understand that there are some bases of constitutional continuity, that the Constitution continued with these dramatic amendments. Why did they do this? Given the breadth of the change they wanted to make, why didn't they put aside the old Constitution? Why didn't they, as Bruce Ackerman or Sandy Levinson and other legal scholars have asked, call a constitutional convention? And should we think of the Congress, the sort of highly peculiar Congress that met, especially between 1863 and 1867, as itself a constitutional convention that just that behaved as one but didn't bother to call itself that, which is an interesting question. But we should establish why, what are the bases, the roots of the understanding of continuity? So we have it, and this requires understanding where Northern Republicans and where their vision of the world came from. So one thing that I think that is a challenge to represent is how transformative or revolutionary did Northern Republicans think they were or want to be in the 1850s? It's a different question, and we'll get to how transformative they become over the 1860s. In my lights, I see Republicans as the, the challenge of explaining that being rooted in two factors that pull us in two different directions. The first is I do believe by looking at their international agenda and at their understanding of the relationship between global or at least hemispheric and transatlantic change in the United States, that they were people who saw themselves as revolutionary in a broad sense of moving the world in a different direction, of looking to kill slavery everywhere as part of a dynamic that would both help kill it in the United States, feedback loop out to help kill it in other places, and in that process protect the triumph that they saw of wage labor. And in this respect, they were not conservators of an order that existed in the global realm in the 19th century. They were people who aimed, who believed that that global order, or at least that transatlantic order, had been disrupted in the early parts of the 19th century, especially by the British, but also by the French and the Haitians. The Haitians, of course, proved a much more challenging political problem for the white Northern Republicans to solve in the 1850s. But they understood that had been disrupted, and they believed further disruptions were necessary 
both to improve the world, but to end slavery in the United States. So they saw this as a dynamic process. And this way, they are much more in keeping what, what Lincoln and many others called the liberal force of the age, an effort that aimed to transform a great deal of the transatlantic world. But domestically, they faced a problem which is the problem was that within their confines, many of them as, as local lawyers in places like Western New York and places like Northern Ohio, New England, they thought their society was great. They did not launch a war to transform Western New York, Northern Ohio, Massachusetts. They believed in many respects that by building and protecting a system of wage labor there, they had developed a powerful bulwark for liberty as they defined it. So they went into the Civil War with at once these transformative international agendas and also a problem. How do you change a part of the country without destroying the foundation that has made Ohio, Massachusetts, Western New York, to them a model of the best that they saw in the world. And it's this mixture that I think explains why it's so hard to define the degrees of their revolutionary goals in world affairs, but also originally what can look like a more moderating term domestically. So there were, it was a strong anti-slavery cause of the Civil War. They're not just responding to the South. They have a strong agenda, but they are running as the people protecting the Constitution as it should be, as they sort of argued, I think, uh, in exaggerated terms, but in important political ways, that they were the defenders of an original anti-slavery impulse in the Constitution that had been buried. But then the Civil War happens. In the face of the Civil War, many of these people who saw themselves as staunch defenders of the Constitution faced the fact that they could not resolve the problem, that they had a, a dilemma. They had the power to attack slavery in the South because of the Civil War, a power they did not expect to have. But to use that power, they had to go beyond the law in ways that they had thought, started to think through in the 1850s, but had not fully had to articulate. In the process of that, you see what scholars in other areas call increasingly used to define revolutions, not a small avant-garde cell that lays everything out ahead of time, but a transformation in revolutionary situations of, a, of common sense, a sequential transformation of common sense. We can think that a revolution is launched by people who have written long agendas and platforms and little red books and so on. And there's certain revolutions that proceed like that. But in fact, the vast majority of revolutions that political scientists and social scientists study are led by people very much like 1850s Republicans, people who originally want to manage a process of change and then over the process of a revolutionary situation, develop broader and broader sense of what's possible and in the process transform their common sense. Many of the most significant and successful revolutionaries seen in this term are people who often downplay their own revolutionary motives even as they take revolutionary actions. And this is exactly what happens to a good deal of the Republican Party. Facing the inability of the Constitution to resolve these problems, they decide to go beyond it. And they decide that they are willing to utilize sets of methods that are unknown to the Constitution. Use of not just martial law, but of ordering generals to order states to pass constitutional amendments. So when we think through how does the, how does the uh, especially the 14th and 15th, but even the 13th, how do these amendments pass? They rely explicitly upon the votes of states held under martial law 
where orders are conveyed through military generals that oversee registration and convey to the constitutional conventions called by the military of those states, that the only way that they'll be accepted is if they ratify changes to the Constitution. Until that point, Congress excludes roughly a third of its elected members in order to preserve a supermajority capable of passing further constitutional amendments. If this happened in other circumstances, we would, if this happened today in Mexico or Spain, we would obviously call this a revolutionary moment, even if they did not actually wrap up and throw away the Constitution. And as they approach, especially the 14th Amendment, they talk increasingly about the idea that they are fundamentally disrupting the constitutional order. They do say they put limits around that disruption. They preserve the states. It's not that states don't exist. They don't completely destroy federalism, but they put new limits upon state power and new expansive defenses of federal intervention. Some, of course, point more to the continuities to assure people they're not revolutionaries, but an increasing number, including of mainstream Republican politicians, John Sherman, James Garfield, not just a radical fringe, say, yes, this is a revolution, but are these times not revolutionary? And if the goal is to kill slavery and the slave power, and if the Constitution does not allow you to do it, but the moment does, should you be bound by the Constitution? And the goal in the amendments is to permanently alter the system. Now that word alter brings us back to where we started. How much of a discontinuity? Should we see, as some Republicans do say, a new constitution is born, the old constitution eclipses, first constitution, second constitution? Some legal scholars do argue this, and I think it's a useful prod into both public memory and into our understanding, our sense of the assumptions that shape American history to think through what it would mean to talk about a first constitution and a second constitution. But that does also have to take place in a conversation where we acknowledge that the Constitution itself, the form they use, is not discard and rewrite, but amend. And there are elements of continuity. So scholars who emphasize administrative processes or certain forms of local law or the development of common law don't always see the Civil War as a revolutionary break, which is also something to keep in mind. And yet, on the third hand, if we look at scholars of legal culture in places like even Maoist China and Soviet Russia, they see lots of continuity. In other words, that we risk comparing the Civil War not to other revolutions in which legal continuity persists between czarist and Soviet eras or persists between imperial, republican, and Maoist areas in China, and thus the discovery of legal continuity in the United States across the Civil War seems completely unsurprising, but instead we compare it to an ideal type of revolution that changes everything all at once forever and is never doubted. But that is, as I say, I don't think exists, it doesn't even exist in most of the great revolutions, uh, the so-called great revolutions that we look at, and it's not surprising it doesn't exist in the Civil War. So I think there is a principled argument to make about legal and therefore constitutional continuity, but I think that we also need to rebalance that argument by also understanding the historical power of what legal scholars and others have pointed to as a fundamental disruption, as a second constitutional system, whether or not we want to call it a second constitution. And how to balance those two is going to depend a great deal upon where you're looking and what you're looking for. 
just as the other legal scholar intervention, that there's also a third constitution in the 1930s, and that we fooled ourselves into following their language of continuity between the 1900s and the 1950s. We fooled ourselves from seeing a very differently launched constitutional revolution, just as I think that that is going to carry more weight in some circumstances than in others, depending on what we're analyzing and what questions we're asking. So there is an argument for constitutional continuity. I'm not saying that that's a, um, a fallacious or illogical argument, but I think that there's also a powerful argument that the significance of the amendments of the Constitution, even at the time, is such that we are wise to think through the implications of thinking of a second constitutional order or even a second constitution created through revolutionary methods in the 1860s. What ideas about law and constitutionalism do you see moving transnationally in this period? This leads to another piece of my book, which is in some ways a series of interconnected essays. And Two of them are about the relationship between Cuba and the Spanish Empire and peninsular Spain and the United States with some forays into Mexico as well. And that one of the things that I argue is what it means to think about the international causes of the Civil War, of a Civil War caused by transformations in an international order. This also is very common in contemporary studies and what's called fourth wave of revolutionary studies by political scientists and social scientists. That revolutions rarely emerge solely from domestic transformations, but instead are ways of reading an international order and of trying to turn that international order inside toward the transformation of the country. Some of the things that transformed U.S. domestic politics in the 1850s explicitly moved that political discussion toward an open discussion of revolution as a method to achieve change. Why would this be true? Well, if we imagine that Americans are looking around the world to understand how change happens, we see one big bust that's somewhat overrated in its impact in U.S. history, and another much less understood, but much more, in my view, significant boom. The bust is the 1848 revolutions in Europe. These have a huge impact on the intellectual history of revolution, but are almost a complete dud in the history of the development of American revolution, of the movement of the Civil War toward revolution, in large part because they fail. In this respect, it feeds into a developing U.S. cynicism about revolutions as a way to transform the country and therefore into a feedback into processes of reformism. And while there are important movements of Kossuth, Garibaldi, other figures who become icons in the U.S., then in many respects, the impact of the 1848 revolutions in the U.S. is hard to piece out once you look at a granular level. But there is something else going on in the areas much more proximate to the United States. And I argue in the 19th century, places that the United States is as likely to look for comparisons as it would be to England or, or France. And that's Cuba, the Spanish Empire, and Mexico. And all three of those move into period of revolutionary ferment in the 1850s fueled by slavery and the question of Spanish martial rule over Cuba in order to sustain slavery and the complex and often to our eyes contradictory politics that that promotes. So in 1843 to 44, large-scale slave revolt, a known in the U.S. as La Escalera, and that Placido, a uh, free African-American poet, becomes an icon of U.S. anti-slavery for his role in it. A then known, but now mostly unknown to U.S. historians, 1836 to 37, revolt by white Creoles on the island against the imposition of martial law. And the ways that these, combined with an increased importation of African slaves to Cuba in violation of their treaties with Great Britain, leads to 
a heightened sense of a revolutionary moment on the island. U.S. historians know of this largely through a mistake in understanding, which is a belief that the way to understand Cuba in the 1840s and 1850s is through filibusters. And the way to understand filibusters is of a couple of foolish figureheads, you know, uh, Narciso Lopez especially, being backed by adventurers and by pro-slavery um, adventurers who aim to invade the island, but with complete and farcical failure. And this is a classic scenario of what happens when you write about the world without ever leaving the United States. It's odd that some of the people who promote this vision themselves lecture other people about why, you know, they're too insular. But it's striking that this is a peculiarly, this view that what we under, need to know about Cuba and Spain is how Americans understood them at the time, is just simply a reproduction of an imperial mindset cast as anti-imperialism. In other words, it gives no power to Cuba or Spain uh, as places of generative of their own political conflicts. And you see this if you do work in either the Spanish Ultramar archives, which for this period are in Madrid, or in the archive in Havana, which include the Capitan Hannibal letters and Commission Militar, other archives that were of the period but left behind when Spanish rule ended. Because there it's absolutely clear that neither Spanish officials in Cuba, nor their informants on the island, nor Spanish rulers in Madrid thought about this period in this way at all. Instead, they repeatedly say that the way to understand the era is that Cuba is facing at least two and potentially three nascent revolts that are significant but hard to join together, one of which is of an always potential slave revolt, like 1843 to 44, Another of which is of Cuban Creoles, why people claiming to be white Spaniards born on the island but excluded from political office and held under martial law, and increasingly wary, although not critics of slavery in general, increasingly wary of the increase in the slave population. And these are clustered around places like uh, Puerto Principe, Santiago de Cuba places that are long-standing sites of Creole revolt, and then a third oddly potentially revolutionary force being the wealthy slave owners in the Havana-Matanzas region who fear the opposite, that Spain is not going to protect slavery and that Spain will eventually give in to Great Britain and the only way to protect their increasingly vast sugar slavery production enterprise is to leave Spain and join the United States. So all of these things are circulating. The Spanish believe that they're in a place of grave crisis. They launch hundreds of inquiries of thousands of people as revolutionaries on the island. In the process, they discover what they believe are vast revolutionary networks, exile hundreds and hundreds of people as revolutionaries, seize their property, execute some. Their explanations they have two explanations for why these revolts in Cuba don't actually succeed. And they're both interesting for U.S. historians to contemplate. One of which is something that I think is just indisputably true, though it's something U.S. historians, especially critical U.S. historians, rarely imagine, which is Spain is stronger than anyone thinks. That they successfully have navigated the crises of, 18, of 1810 to 1821 and that they have reasserted authority, and they have ruled through fear because they're much stronger than anyone thinks. Actually, some of the people who do understand this are people like Jefferson Davis, who are very wary of war with Spain and aware of Spain's purchase expansion of its own navy in the 1840s, 1850s. And the other answer is even more strange for U.S. historians, that the U.S. government refuses to support the filibusters. And the Spanish and Cuban officials repeatedly say the U.S. people would love to uh, aid some kind of invasion of Cuba, and the U.S. government's not going to do it. And that they do what we ask. They may not want to, but they do what they ask. Why? Back to number one, because they fear Spain. So we get this oddity that these vast networks of exiles from Cuba and Spain settled throughout the U.S. and Mexico are constantly plotting revolutionary networks, 
constantly plotting revolutionary actions, talking about revolution. But at the moment, the reason we misread these small, isolated filibustering invasions is they're highly attuned to their status as non-citizens of the U.S. and Mexico. And at the moment, they're watching the federal governments of those countries to see whether they'll be punished for participating. And so you'll see movements led by Cubans. And when the U.S. presidents is repeatedly, Taylor, Fillmore, Pierce, do repeatedly issue injunctions and proclamations not to participate, almost all the Cuban exiles withdraw. And that's how you get these boats that are filled with a handful of adventurers. The other thing that U.S. historians always get wrong, or not always get wrong, many historians have gotten right, but have increasingly gotten wrong, which is even worse, knowing the careful work that had been done to show that this interest in expansion was cross-regional and that Lopez and William Walker and others had strong northern support. Oddly, the, uh, one of the distortions of the recent work in slavery has been to turn it into solely an effort at slave expansion, when in fact many of Lopez's supporters are in New York and their efforts to launch are in part based in New York Harbor and Rhode Island. And William Walker had been in California where he was in fact a free soiler. So that we've misread this. And what does that mean we've also misread? In assuming that a kind of undifferentiated U.S. expansionism explained U.S. interest in Cuba particularly, we have then missed the role of Cuban exiles in transforming U.S. politics. We have then hundreds, by this point, over a thousand Cubans inside the United States, many of whom had been recently exiled by Spain for revolutionary activity. They arrive in the dense revolutionary networks, and they're here as they see that the problem they face is in Washington. They aim to transform U.S. politics. And at first, they do make alliances with slave owners in trying to press for a direct U.S. intervention in Cuba to support slavery. And they build up that rhetoric. When that fails, increasingly, they come to assess, as the Spanish government had assessed, that slave owners lack the power over the U.S. government to steer it, that it's a mirage. And they start to steer toward the other road, potentially revolutionary force they see in U.S. politics, which are anti-slavery. And to understand that anti-slavery is full of expansionists who dream of expanding the U.S. government but who have turned against expansion because of Texas and the U.S.-Mexican War. And the Cubans start to convince them that if they seize control of the state, they can turn expansionism toward anti-slavery. In this respect, Cubans are often feeding back information and disinformation about the world events, about what's going on in Cuba, but also heightening the stakes. And they're using and naturalizing that word that had been an odd word in U.S. parlance of revolution. The U.S. people talk you know, often about the U.S. revolution, the first revolution is a great revolution, but not about the need for other revolutions. And these people, I think at least as much, possibly more than the better studied German and Austrian and other European revolutionaries, 1848, create a basis for inflaming both sides toward revolutionary rhetoric. And this revolutionary rhetoric in some ways can be anti-constitutional in a, in a country where both parties were trying to define themselves through the Constitution, that this revolutionary rhetoric is explicitly a claim about the need to exceed normal barriers and methods to create the kind of change that is desired. So I think that this fuels a kind of openness that wouldn't have manifested absent the war, but that might have been also a part of how people came to understand how to respond to the war. You also see a similar process that I won't spell out in the same detail. In Mexico, which enters its own series of revolutionary conflicts in the 1850s, that also involves Mexican exiles to the United States, including in New Orleans, where they interact with and intermarry with Cuban exiles, where one of the leading Cuban exiles marries Benito Juarez's daughter while they're all in exile in New Orleans, and a circulation of revolutionary ideas across the Gulf by people highly plugged into U.S. politics and by people in both Mexican liberals and Cuban revolutionaries who understand that the way to 
create and protect change in their own areas is to transform U.S. politics and are highly attuned to how to manipulate that to the degree that they can. So I do think that this is a piece of a broader breakdown of confidence in a kind of small-R Republican reformism. And one of the things that you see emerge in the aftermath of the 1860s in Mexico, in the U.S., and in Spain, which sustains, as you know, its control over Cuba, but undergoes a revolution to depose the queen in 1868, partly drawing on the inspiration of the Civil War, and then a Republican revolution and declaration of a republic in 1873, led by a historian who studied the U.S. Civil War in Madrid, is that in all three sites, you see the development of a different of a ways of defining Republicans, small R Republicans, and, and not through constitutionalism, but force. And the impact of the U.S. Reconstruction on small R Republican thinking across the Atlantic, I think, is something that we've missed in this time period. We know a little bit more about its impact in the early 20th century, which is that both Juarez in Mexico based on his own history, but also his reading of U.S. history, comes to believe that the lesson of how to defend a republic is to step beyond constitutions and to rely on force. But there's something correct in the critique that republics aren't self-defending naturally. The falsity of that theory is that they're stuck within their own frameworks and governing constitutions, and that they have to enter a revolutionary time in order to survive and to force through their changes and then restore a republic. Obviously, he sees Lincoln as going through a very similar process and the capital R Republicans during Reconstruction. And the person who becomes the last president of the first Spanish Republic declares martial law explicitly by comparison with U.S. Reconstruction, arguing that the lessons of U.S. and Mexico are that the ways to build a republic are to bind together the military in order to create a method of change that can't be achieved through other ways and while sustaining order. In the aftermath of all three of the collapses of U.S. Reconstruction, the Spanish Republic, which falls and is replaced by a king, and of the Mexican Republic into the Porfiriado dictatorship, you get a whole new moment of a constitutional rethinking of a rethinking of how the relationship between constitutions, republics, and force. And that's also very interesting, too. But I think that if we see the Civil War era as an 